Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kapinski. And today, Julie Clark is back on the podcast to discuss her new domestic thriller, The Lies I Tell, which you will not be able to put down. Crime by the Book says, a gripping, immersive, downright triumphant revenge thriller. This book is so incredibly engaging and immersive, and I loved following the dangerous dance that develops between these two women. Driven by two complex, vividly crafted female protagonists, The Lies I Tell draws readers into a thrilling web of deceit and revenge. Julie Clark is the New York Times bestselling author of The Lies I Tell and The Last Flight, both of which were also number one international bestsellers and have been translated into more than 25 languages. She lives in Los Angeles with her family and a golden doodle with poor impulse control. Julie, <laughs> welcome back to A Bookish Home. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here again. I was so excited to get to read the follow-up to The Last Flight. And, you know, it just, your books are the best kind of like binge-worthy reads. They keep me guessing the whole time. I end up just like stealing any moment I can to read when I'm in the middle of one of your books, which I just love having that experience. Um, So I think listeners are really going to enjoy this one. And I would love to hear, you know, The Last Flight had so much success and did so well. What was it like to kind of have to produce this this next book? And um, what was the process like for figuring out, you know, how you wanted to follow up The Last Flight? Um, it was really stressful, you know, I mean, when you have a book that's so popular that people are talking about and, you know, I mean, I'm still getting messages, you know, two years out about the last flight and questions and, and book club requests. Um, it, it's really, it's a lot of pressure to think like, okay, now what am I going to do? You know, and will it yeah. be as good? And could it possibly be as good? And I think, you know, and, and I think every author struggles with that no matter, no matter how their book does, they always wonder, you know, do I have another one in me? Am I able to write another book? Um, And so I think the best thing to do is to just sit down and write one, you know, and not worry about whether it will be as well received or whether it will totally flop. Like, I mean, I think authors are always worrying about that regardless. So, you know, you just have to write the book that you want to write and kind of silence the voices as best you can and work as hard as you can and stay as focused as you can and, you know, keep your fingers crossed, but know that, you know, if the book does flop, there's another one coming after it and you can just, you know, keep getting up and trying again. Yeah. That's a, that's a good perspective on it. And I think the lies I tell is even better than the last Mm -hmm. flight, which is hard to top. Um, Yeah. So what was the nugget of inspiration for this one? Or did it take you a while to, you know, bounce around different ideas? I actually spent a year writing a completely different book. And, and so after, after we finished the last flight and kind of put it into production, I had this idea for another book that I wanted to write. And so I just started writing it and got a full draft. You know, I didn't love it, but I felt like, okay, I think there might be something here. And so we sent the first 50 pages to my editor and she was like, "Mm, this doesn't really feel like a thriller. And I was like, oh, okay. So I kind of had to scramble a little bit because it was October of 2020 at that point. And um, I really wanted to kind of release a book two years after the last flight. So that put me at, you know, 2022, which sounds really far away from October, 2020, but it's actually not. And, um, 
so I'd had this idea. I was listening to a podcast called Who the Hell is Hamish, which is about a con artist in Australia. And he, you know, follows the typical trajectory of a con artist where he, you know, is charming and fun and, and handsome and successful. And he, you know, cons these women into falling in love with him, giving them all their money and then disappearing, right? And I remember thinking like, this is so obvious. Like, first of all, I don't know how these women are falling for this. And second of all, <laughs> um, I think a woman would make a better con artist. Like, I think a woman would be better at that. And the reason why I thought that was because women are less threatening, right? When we approach people, others aren't, you know, automatically on guard. They're not, you know, they're not suspicious of us in the same way that we might be of a man. And so I started kind of playing around with that idea of like, what if it was a female con artist and what might she be after and what might she want and what, you know, what would her path have been like to becoming a con artist? And at that point, um, Meg Williams, my con artist in The Wise I Tell was... I Yeah, and her character is so well-developed. Um, you end up learning so much about her motivations mm-hmm. and... yeah. It just I I felt so inside her head, and I wondered, you know, how you really got to know her so well. And I was on the edge of my seat, trying to kind of watch the decisions she was going to make, and trying to figure out when, you know, when to trust sort of the different characters. And I kept being wrong with my guesses of things, and so I'm just kind of wondering how you got in her head and sort of even plotted out like her cons and how things were going to go. You know, Meg came to me really easily. I just, she came to me almost fully formed. I wanted, I mean, I wanted to write a story about a female con artist, but I didn't want her to be a sociopath like most con artists are, who just kind of go around and take advantage of whoever they can, whenever they can. I wanted Meg to sort of have a purpose. And, you know, so I started thinking about like, well, how might a con artist come to conning, right? Like there's got to be something that happens in their life that sort of pushes them to think that living like that is okay. And so I started kind of thinking deeply about Meg's backstory and what her childhood might have been like and what her high school years might have been like. And, um, you know, I created a sort of a childhood trauma that that motivates her and drives her to kind of seek revenge on men who take advantage of their, their position of power. And it fit in pretty nicely with sort of the themes of the last flight where, you know, two strong women are sort of taking down, you know, a very powerful man. And so I felt like it was like in the right lane for me. And I wanted to sort of explore the ideas of Eva from The Last Flight and how she sort of managed to manipulate the world around her and manipulate people into doing what she wanted them to do. And I just kind of wanted to take it a little bit farther, you know? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I read in an interview, um, someone asked you about sort of why not have her be an unreliable narrator. Mm. Can you can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Because I, I did really like um, that aspect of, of your writing, the way you do, um, kind of position her as, as not that unreliable narrator that we see quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the unreliable female narrator as a, as a structure. I think it works really well for a lot of books. Um, and there's really fun to read, you know, but at the same time, Um, You know, I'm a mother of two boys. I'm a teacher of young children and a woman. 
And I also feel like I have a responsibility um, for how I portray women on the pages of my books. And I feel like in the world that we live in right now, um, women are often questioned and doubted and discounted and things that we say happen to us are, you know, are pushed back on and our truth doesn't hold the same weight as, as that of a man's. And so I felt like perpetuating that, that stereotype of the hysterical over-emotional woman who's struggling with, you know, mental health or substance abuse as a way to not trust what she says sort of goes against um, everything that I feel women actually are, which are smart, they're savvy, they're powerful, they get stuff done. Um, you know, the saying goes, you know, if you want something done right the first time, ask a woman. <laughs> and I think, I think that that's true of all the women that I know. And so while I know that there are people out there who, who do struggle with those things, I don't necessarily think that makes them unreliable. I just think that makes them, you know, people who are, who are struggling. I think that's really interesting to be thinking about as you're kind of figuring out how you want um, the book to go. And with the cat character, could you talk about her a little bit? And was she mm-hmm. harder to tap into? And then I'm also curious about, because the, I don't want to give anything away, but the Scott and cat relationship really kept me guessing and sort of yeah. doubting myself at different times and doubting Meg. And so I just thought that was all woven together so well. So Kat um, is the investigative reporter who was sort of collateral damage on a con that Meg pulls many, many years ago. And she blames Meg partially unfairly, I would say, for some trauma that happened to her in the course of her job as an investigative reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And so Kat has sort of been festering and harboring her own ideas of revenge. Her entire career was derailed by this. Um, and now she's sort of stuck writing clickbait pieces for websites and, you know, being paid pennies per word to make ends meet. And, you know, Kat's kind of cobbled a life together, but she's dreamed of something bigger and better. You know, she wants to be like the Ronan Farrow of investigative reporters. And she knows and has believed for many years that Meg Williams is a con artist and she was responsible for the downfall of a man many years ago. And, and she's insisted that, you know, Meg was you know, the mastermind behind that man's downfall and no one would listen to her. And so she's determined to expose Meg and, and kind of reclaim what she believes Meg sort of stole from her. And so, you know, Kat has, Kat's living with her boyfriend, Scott, who is a police officer with the LAPD. He is a fraud detective. And so, um, you know, he has a lot of really good advice for Kat that, you know, she doesn't always want to hear. And, um, but, you know, Scott has his own, his own demons and his own problems. And, you know, he was an addict, an addict, um, a gambler, a compulsive gambler. And so, you know, they have to sort of navigate the life of living with an addict, right? And, and all of the things that that entails as well. Um, And I think a writing teacher told me a long time ago, like, you know, everybody has to have their own main storyline, even if it's not the main storyline of the book. You know, everybody has a past, everybody has a history, everybody has things that they're struggling with, and they're the star of their own movie in their mind. And so, you know, it it isn't just enough for me to develop Meg as a character and Meg and her backstory. You know, everybody needs their own backstory. Everybody needs their own trauma. You know, Kat does, Scott, her boyfriend does, 
um, everybody needs to have their own baggage. And so that I think is what sometimes can make a story very rich in detail is that it feels peopled by real people who have, you know, histories and problems and their own trauma that they're kind of navigating as well, which informs the decisions that they make. That's such helpful advice. And I do think that that's one of the reasons why I know I'm so drawn to your books because I am so, I'm, it's so gripping, but I'm also so invested in the characters and they, and they are so real. And um, yeah, that's interesting kind of how you arrive at that. You know, as you are kind of figuring out your characters and how the story is going to play out, can you talk a little bit about your process? Do you, um, did you have like a, you know, detailed outline? Do you sort of write your way to what your characters are going to wind up doing? Um, how does that work for you? Uh, I don't really have a detailed outline. I generally know what the main turning points are, sort of like the beginning turning points or the entry into the story and what significant event sort of launches everybody off into their journey. And then I know sort of what the midpoint is, how everything kind of shifts and changes. And then I always know how the ending goes, but in between spaces, I sort of go along as I go along. I don't really know. And that's part of the fun of writing, but I also think that's part of, of the headache of it as well, because you can kind of get lost in those middle parts and you don't really know how to get where you need to go or how quickly you should get there. And that's what sort of takes the longest. It's not getting the first draft down for me. It's, it's turning a first draft, which is maybe like 60 to 70,000 words into a full length novel, which is anywhere from 80 to 90,000 words. That, that part is the hardest for me. Were there any um, really big changes um, between those early drafts and later when you revised, like even, like, did you know right away that you were going to have those, like, two different points of view? Like, did anything really significant change along the way? Yeah, it, it's always hard to remember because you, you spend so much time with the final draft of the book that you don't really remember what the earlier versions were. Um, but, you know, like with The Last Flight, for example, I had Claire getting off the plane with $40,000 in her pocket. And my one of my best readers said, $40,000? Really? You know, like, that's not really a very, <laughs> very bad position for somebody to be in. And so I have a tendency to sort of keep people protected. My character's protected a lot. Um, with this one, though, Meg, um, I, you know, I had her pulling all these cons and I had her going after, you know, Ron Ashton. But I didn't really have a specific reason why until um, until one of my early readers was like, I don't really get why she cares about him, you know. And so then I had to really stop and think, like, why would she wait 10 years to come back and go after this guy? You know, what did he do to her? And so I don't think I had the house storyline for Meg, which is that Ron Ashton basically stole her childhood home out from under her mother and was sort of the reason why the book opens with Meg. 10 years ago, living in her car, you know, being homeless and what that's like. And, you know, using dating apps to sort of get a free meal and a place to sleep every now and then, you know, she kind of fell into grifting out of necessity, not because she wanted to con people. And so that aspect of it, which ended up being a huge part of the book, this house, her obsession with her childhood home and what he did to her and how she ends up turning that um, kind of on its head and using real estate to sort of con Ron Ashton at the end is sort of, it was late. It was late to the manuscript. 
Yeah, well, and two, as you're talking about your early readers, um, it sounds like they're an important part of your process. Is that um, a writing group or just trusted friends? What's your um, sort of like writing community and and feedback um, system like? I have some very early trusted readers that I know I can send stuff to and, and they send stuff to me. Um, and, and you kind of, you kind of gather, gather these, these writer friends over the course of years, sort of slowly and carefully, um, and, and you protect them, you know, like gold, they sort of hoard them, you know, and, <laughs> and when you find a good one, um, you, you cultivate that friendship and really, and really nurture it and take care of it because they're invaluable. You know, you get to a point in drafting a story and, you don't really know what it is you're trying to say anymore. And you need somebody that you can send the book to not your agent, not your editor and say like, what am I doing here? Do you know? Cause I don't know anymore. And then they can talk to you and say, yeah, I can see what you're doing. Like, let's try this or let's try that. And, and that's just really invaluable. Do you have any other favorite kind of writing resources that you turn to either to sort of like enhance your craft or get inspiration? Um, I love to read poetry Um, and poetry um, is really a way that I can sort of enter into the descriptive side of, of writing of, of the thoughtful reflective side, you know, because I write thrillers. So it's a lot of plot and a lot of character driven stuff. And, and sometimes, you know, you want to sort of sit back and, and think about the bigger ideas, the bigger pictures, what, what, what kind of circumstances life sometimes hands you. And I find that, I find that in a lot of poetry. So I, I get it from everywhere. I don't have any favorite poets or any, any, you know, a lot of it is online, you know, on Instagram, I think there's poetry is not a luxury. And that is just a huge resource for, for me as a writer to sort of slow my writing down and really kind of focus on, on the words on the language. I love that. Um, so I know that you teach as well. So how has it been sort of fitting in, you know, the actual writing, the book promotion, events and all of that, and then also be teaching? It sounds um, mm-hmm. very busy. <laughs> it is. Um, it used to be pretty easy. It was, you know, I would write in the early morning hours until 6am and then you know, get up and go off on my day. And when it was just, you know, one book I was working on, it felt pretty manageable. But, you know, now that I'm three books in and, you know, I just did a whole book tour this last summer and I'm still doing promotion, you know, four months later. um, And I'm, you know, writing a short story for an anthology and I'm working on another short for another, another um, publication, I sort of am feeling like I'm running out of time a little bit, you know, I'm having to be very smart about, um, what I'm working on and when and how and timing things much more carefully. So it's getting a lot more challenging to do, but I'm still managing it. So I'm going to do it as long as I can. Yeah. And what do you teach again? Fifth grade. Oh, that's fun. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, well, I mean, I know you don't write for kids, but even just, um, you know, being around all those different personalities every day and the liveliness of a school must at least kind of like fill some inspiration well. 
It definitely helps sort of balance some some of the stress and frustration that publishing can sometimes offer. You know, you don't always get what you want in publishing and, and oftentimes you don't. Um, and, and everybody is competing for the same spots, the same slots, you know, and and it's hard. It's hard to sort of rise above all the noise. And so it helps to have a place to go where nobody really cares about that you know, and, and the pace of the day is so intense and busy and full that you can kind of step out of, of the lane of publishing and just not think about it for, you know, six and a half hours. And it's, I think it's, I think it's a privilege to be able to do that. I know that when I'm not teaching, I tend to obsess and wallow and, and, perseverate and, you know, do all of those things that, you know, writers as a group, we're, we're a bit neurotic about stuff. So, you know, it's nice to not have a day filled with that. Yeah. Yeah. You're too busy to, to even think yeah. about it. Do your students think it's cool that an author is teaching them writing and like reading books with them or are they just totally unfazed because it's adult books? Not, they don't yeah, care. not, not <laughs> even a little bit. They don't care at all. Yeah, not even. They will someday. I'll be like, oh, a famous author taught me school. Yeah, Um, maybe. Well, you know, I always love to hear as well what um, authors are reading themselves. And I'm curious, too, if you're able to read in your genre or if you read like completely different things. What have you um, read lately that you'd want to recommend? Um, let's see. Well, I read a while ago and loved Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayborn. It's about these like 60 something year old assassins who are sort of on the brink of their retirement for the organization that they work for these, you know, 60 year old women assassins, by the way, which I thought was really clever. And um, their organization has decided to take them out. And so they have to figure out who's behind the order, foil the order, and survive, which, which it, it, it was incredibly fun. And that one's out now. So Ooh, that I definitely really good. highly, highly recommend Killers of a Certain Age. Um, I just finished reading Finley Donovan Jumps the Gun by uh, El Cosimano. It's the third installment of the Finley Donovan series. And it is hysterical and funny and tense and poignant and all of those things that you love about Finlay Donovan. Um, so look for that one. I think that one's coming out in November. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think it's coming out this fall. Um, nice. And then I just read the sweet spot by Amy Popel, which I'm absolutely mm. obsessed with. I just I read that too. Them. I binge read that over the past couple it, of days. I could not stop. It <laughs> was phenomenal. And uh, that to me is maybe my favorite book of the year and it's late in the year. So that says a lot. Yeah. Um, oh, Amy so good. crafts characters that I just absolutely love spending time with. They're funny, they're human, they're flawed. They're all of the things that Amy herself is. Um, and so that one comes out February 14th, 2023. Yep. So you're going to have to wait a little while for that one, but I think it might be up on that galley. So you might get lucky and get an arc. So it's go for it. That's my galley. suggestion. Yeah. Yep. It's up on Nick Galley. And uh, yeah, people want to get their pre-orders in their library. Mm -hmm. She's going to come on the Mm -hmm. podcast too. And I've had her before. I, 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 that book just, oh my gosh, I, it exceeded all my expectations too, because I loved her other books, but there, it's just phenomenal. I think that book is going to get lots and lots of buzz and 
um, well-deserved because it just, I, I wanted so. to like yeah. crawl inside and like live in that book for a while. <laughs> I know. I know. Just the setting and the characters and the kids and the house and the dog and the everything just is so, and she writes private schools incredibly well, which, you know, she did in small admissions, but um, it was fun to have her go back to that world again and to kind yeah. of see, you know, um, it, it's just, it's just phenomenal. I just loved it. Well, you'll kind of appreciate, I don't know if, if your students read the Vanderbeekers at all. Yes. Um, uh-huh. Oh yeah. That's sort of, um, it's like a kidlit version in a way of like the yes. bustling New York, really busy house and just like the antics and, mm-hmm. um, I was yeah. like, oh, I feel like those would be like book friends in a way on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, they would. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, um, are you able to say anything about um, book three? And I'm just kind of curious too, like, um, you know, what the pace is now, like when, when is the next, I know this is just coming out, but when, when do we get our hands on the next book? Uh, (laughs) Basically, it's actually book four. Not a lot of people know that my first book, The Ones We Choose was published in 2018. It's not a thriller, but yeah. So The Lies I Tell was my third book. Um, book four is still in early, early, early days, and I'm hard at work and, um, you know, can't really say anything about it right now, but yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be waiting eagerly for, for when that comes, but, um, yeah, I just think, you know, as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, anyone who's sort of been in a reading rut or, um, just hasn't been able to really get into a book lately, I think the lies I tell would just be such a great book to pick up. You're going to be completely absorbed and not be able to put it down. Um, the characters feel so real. The plot will keep you guessing the whole time. So I just really hope that, yeah, anyone who hasn't um, got out and grabbed it yet, go get it from your local bookstore, pick it up at your local library. Um, I would imagine the audio is amazing. Is there an audio book out yet? Yes, there is. Yeah. So oh, the audio nice. is also available. Mm-hmm. Yes. I bet that would be a really fun listen as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Julie, just thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations again on The Lies I Tell. Thank you so much for having me, and hopefully I'll be back with the next one. Yes, can't wait. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com, and there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, A Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores, and if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores, so it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash A Bookish Home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.